Hey everyone, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Tony. I have the privilege and the pleasure and the joy of being on pastoral staff here. If we haven't met, it's good to see you. Uh, if just grab that pen, we can't have any pens up here. Um, now, before I uh, dismiss the kids, I, I want to ask the kids a question. So, kids, if you came in today and you had to devise a plan how I could paint that ceiling up there that's really high up. See, we painted it, and then the paint started falling off. So we needed to come up with a plan of how to paint it. How would you get up that high? Yeah. A ladder, okay. Yeah, someone else? Is ladder the best idea? Yeah. A rope swing of some sort? Yeah. You could sort of hang and paint? Yeah. Okay. Like... Dangle off the edge with a ladder. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yes, did you have one? Stand up on there. Good idea. So, thank you for your ideas. What we decided to do was get a thing called scaffolding. And that's why there's this caution tape and this big pile of stuff here. So, what I would encourage you to do, kids is when we come back and we hang out after church, let's not climb on this. Let's allow this to be a space that we don't play and climb. Can we all agree to that? Awesome. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to see this beautiful new painted area up there. And you'll tell me if we did a good job, okay? Sounds good. All right. If you are a kid and want to hang out with other kids, we, our teachers are over here. Feel free to go hang out with them. It's going to be epic and awesome and fun. <laughs> and uh, if you are with me, I just wanted to take a quick second and uh, just sort of provide a bit of a... I'll wait for the stampede to end. Um, I wanted to provide a little bit of explanation to, uh, you know, this last week, the CDC uh, in with the county supervisors decided to issue the, this mask ordinance. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time as elders, some staff, asking some of you, doctors, police that attend this church, like, how do we do this? Uh, and we had actually had a lot of discussion, prayer about it, and where we landed was this. Um, we know that almost everyone in this room is vaccinated, other than a small handful of people. And basically, according to the guidelines, if you have a gathering, as long as you can um, prove vaccination status, and then that someone who's vaccinated can not wear a mask in a gathering. And if there's food or drink involved, you can also not wear a mask in a gathering. We had a couple things that sort of shifted us to an honor system, which you're sort of experiencing now, where we're asking you as individuals to self-enforce, whether you are vaccinated or not, to wear a mask or not, which is for a few reasons. One, uh, I think one of the sort of basic points was like, we don't want to create a culture in our church body of skepticism and where we're evaluating everyone. We want to create a culture of trust. Like we want to be a family that trusts each other and each other's words and actions. Two, uh, we also don't want to create and foster a culture of shame based on vaccination status. 
So imagine sort of queue at the front of the church where we're checking everyone's card and you're not vaccinated. You're one of the, you know, five to ten people in this church that aren't. Now you have this really weird shame thing going on where the person who's not vaccinated is like, I don't have my card, you know. Now we've created sort of this, this weird family experience. Three, we've also noticed that connection and worship have shifted when we no longer were all required to wear masks. And we want to foster that. We want to create a church body where we're connecting. With that said, I also want to say that if you are vaccinated, right, we're not saying this because we believe somehow that every one of us has a right to do these things. We're doing these things because we want to foster a community that is shaped in Jesus' image. What that means is if you want to wear a mask and you're vaccinated, wear it. If you want to blur the lines between who is vaccinated and not in order to decrease shame in this place, wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask and you are vaccinated, don't wear a mask. This isn't a sort of thing where you are more moral or more righteous, right, if you pick one path or the other. This week, as we were sort of praying and thinking about this, just sort of this call to unity came up for me in Ephesians 3, or 4, 3 through 6. Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father who is over all. And I think in this season of just unbelievable, corrosive political divisiveness and divisiveness in our culture, I think one of the most prophetic things we can do is foster a posture of unity, even among disagreement. It's one of the things that our culture really stinks at, and I think it is one of the things as a culture in a church we can do as a prophetic witness that the unity created through Jesus is more important than our personal preferences, political alignment, or what we think is the most important thing to do, right? Thank you. I'll do that in a second. (laughs) So let's treat each other with love. Let's honor each other's dignity. And let's walk forward knowing that we are all here not because we are moral, not because we are virtuous, but we are here because Jesus has invited us to be his people, his brothers, with him as our king and father. Amen? Now I'll get to the sermon, see if you clap at the end of that. All right. So we're in the midst of an Old Testament series, and we're in the book of Judges, Uh, There's this cycle going on in the book of Judges. We've talked about it a number of times. The cycle goes something like this. The people of Israel do what is right in their own eyes. They get into this messy, messy mess. Then they fall on their knees. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer or a judge. That's what happens. It's a cycle. Point two, in this book, there's often these deliverers or judges that are sent And we have to be careful. These people are not meant to be heroes or moral examples. They're not exemplars of the faith that we are meant to copy. Deborah, who we talked about last week, is maybe the closest we'll get to an exemplar. Everyone else is not. 
This week, we're going to look at the story of Gideon. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The cycle begins. And this time it gets really bad. Uh, Midian is oppressing them. And they're so oppressed, actually, that the Israelites need to leave their homes and build shelters in the mountains and the caves for safety. It's interesting. This is a very different moment because the Midianites aren't actually looking for political power. They're simply economically exploiting the people of Israel. So what they do is they come in, they plunder Israel's crops, leaving no food, which then makes Israel desperate. And what do they do? Right? This is judges. They cry out to God for help. Verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, normally what happens in Judges at this point is there's this move, right? They're desperate, they, do it, they cry out to God, and then what does God do? Sends a deliverer who brings peace. The story of Gideon is a bit of a curveball. God does not send a deliverer, he sends a prophet. Tim Keller says he doesn't send a savior, he sends a sermon. He wants to under, them to understand, that, hey, you guys, you're trapped in this cycle, So he sends a prophet, and this is what the prophet says. It was I, speaking on behalf of God, right? It was I who brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery, and I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hands of all your oppressors, and I drove them out from you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Right? God has done all these things from Israel to rescue them from slavery, from oppression. And yet Israel keeps on doing its own thing, ending up into more oppression and enslaved in all kinds of different ways. And it seems like while Israel has cried out to God for help, it seems like God questions whether they're actually repentant or whether they're just desperate again and trying to get out of cave shelters and get access to food. Right in Judges so far, after the deaths of Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, the people only remain faithful for so long. They experience peace. Life gets good. And what do they do? They start doing what is right in their own eyes. So this time, instead of sending straight off a deliverer, right, he sends them a sermon to remind them of what they've done and what God has done for them. He's like, hey guys, you need to obey. Remember, obey and listen are the same word in Hebrew. So he's saying, you have not listened to me. Now the truth is, we don't know how Israel responds to this sermon. Because literally the next verse, the sermon, or in the next verse, right, the narrative moves to Gideon. It says this, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. Now, if you're a first century person, you know the comedy that has just happened in this last verse. Most of us, I think, read over this and we think, okay, I'm going to give you two historical details that help situate this sort of irony and comedy. One, 
a wine press. I'll let them pass. Wine press. So a wine press is a hole dug in the middle of a vineyard. Imagine you go to Napa and there's a big hole. And what do they do? They stomp on the grapes in order to make wine, right? Wine press. Point two, a threshing floor where wheat is threshed. It's usually up on a hill. Usually there's rock. So what you do is you throw the wheat up. The wind comes because you're on a hill. It blows the chafe away from the wheat, so it separates. Where is Gideon? Gideon is standing in the bottom of the pit in the vineyard. He is standing in the wine press trying to thresh wheat. What do you not have in a pit that you do have on top of a hill? Wind. He is doing an impossible task. Why? He's afraid. He's afraid the Midianites, if he stands up on the hill, are going to see him and they're going to come and take his food, which they've done throughout all of Israel. So instead, he's going in the pit. He's trying to thresh the wheat. It's totally not working because he's afraid. And there's an angel who's sitting under an oak watching this happen. And this is what the angel says to Gideon. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? But he said to him, O Lord, how am I to save Israel? Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh. I am the youngest in my father's house. Yet the Lord said to him, I will certainly be with you, and you will defeat Midian as one man. There's tons going on here. I'll I'll mention a few things. First, notice Gideon's response to the angel. The angel says to him, which also says that it is the Lord. Anyway, there's some confusion there. Anyway, this is probably a cutting room floor discussion of how these things merge. The angel says that the Lord is with Gideon and calls him a valiant warrior. But rather than say, thank you very much, you know, Gideon argues with him. But is God really with me? Valiant warrior? Really? I'm, I'm terrified. I'm in a wine press trying to flesh, thresh wheat. Valiant warrior? Second, right, Gideon tells the angel that God has abandoned them. Which another way of saying that right, God hasn't sent a judge or a deliverer to them like he did in the past. The irony is that the angel is there to send Gideon as that very deliverer. And yet, when the angel starts down that path, no, 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 I, I've sent you, I'm sending you, Gideon. Gideon's like, no, 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 not me. I, I am economically and socially Right, the poorest member of the weakest clan of a non-prominent Israelite tribe. There has to be someone more qualified than me. 
Who has ever felt that? And there has to be someone more qualified than me. Who was ever in the moment of wanting God to show up, God saying, well, what about you? And you're like, I don't want to do that. Right? If only God, Gideon could be certain this was God. So he asked the angel for a sign and he gets it. God know, or Gideon knows that God is calling him to do something, but, but what? What is he called to do? Well, that night the Lord tells him, Gideon, you need to tear down your father's altar to Baal, which is a fertility god in the Canaanite pantheon of gods, and the Asherah, which is like a, a pole or a tree that's decorated for the like mother goddess of the Canaanites. And he says, tear them both down, build an altar to the Lord, and now take that pole tree thing, chop it up, and make that the, the wood that you use in the, to make a burnt offering to me, to the Lord. Or Gideon's terrified. Right? He's going to chop down his dad's altar. Two, he's also afraid of what all the men of the city are going to do once he does this. So he's like, grabs ten servants and goes at night. He sneaks off in the middle of the night, does what God says. Now, just as an aside, it's not actually unusual in Judges that his dad, Joash, would have this altar. See, the people of Israel were formally worshiping God, but on the side, they were worshiping all the Canaanite agricultural gods, commerce gods, and sex and beauty gods. And this is why the first step that God gives to Gideon isn't to attack Midian, but actually deal with the idolatry in the midst of Israel. Now, as you might imagine, the townspeople are furious. Gideon was right. And they actually want Gideon to be stoned. And they would actually have stoned him, but his dad, Joash, intervenes. He says this in verse 31. Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? If he is God, let him contend for himself since someone has torn down his altar. Essentially, hey, you say Baal's a god. Does God really need your help? Let Baal deal with Gideon and he gets him off the hook. And this happens just in time for the battle. Literally in the next verse, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east assemble together for battle. In verse 34, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord covered Gideon like clothing. And it's because of this covering that Gideon is then able to assemble this army to face the Midianites. It's pretty interesting, though, because despite God's covering, which enables him to gather this army, which two seconds ago he thought, I could never do this, right? Gideon is still afraid. Gideon is still unsure. So he asks God, if you are going to save Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I am putting a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you save Israel through me as you have spoken. Right? This is Judge 6.37. Now, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard someone say like, Throw a fleece out. Has anyone ever heard that? 
A couple of you? Yeah. Right, and this is where that concept comes from. The concept is pretty simple. Gideon asked God to do something unusual to illustrate his presence in the process. Right, if God keeps the ground dry and the fleece is wet, then the next night he reverses it. And both ways he's able to illustrate, wow, God is in control of nature. But I want to riff just contemporary for a second. Because I think the way we often apply this is actually a misapplication of the original intent. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to this later, but I want to hit it now. So most of us do, do something very similar when we're making decisions. Like, let's say you want to accept a job somewhere. Or you're thinking about moving somewhere. Or you're thinking about getting married or whatever. Name the life decision. Right? We say, oh, I'm going to do a fleece. And I get it. On one level, I totally get it. Like, it makes sense. You want some sense of assurance. But I think we need to be really careful about imitating Gideon for a few reasons. First, in the New Testament, Satan clearly asked Jesus for a sign. He says, jump off this, right? The angels will catch you. And Jesus says back to him, right, do not put God to the test. Clearly saying, be careful about this. Right? We don't Throw out these fleeces and say, well, God didn't do it, right? We're putting God to the test. Two, and I think this is, this is important. We need to pay specific attention to the sign that Gideon is actually asking for. So Gideon has just destroyed Canaanite god altars. And these gods, right, Baal and through the Asherim, were worshipped as nature gods who could provide rain for crops. Okay? Now, he is specifically in this sign asking for God to do a miracle that is directly connected to rain and God's control over nature. So Gideon isn't really asking for a little sign to help him make a life decision. The story is really about who God is. Gideon is asking God essentially, so are you God, the creator of all things? Are you so powerful that I can trust you going into war? Right, I just knocked over these altars to the gods that controlled fertility, agriculture, rain. And now I'm turning back to you and saying, are you the God who control whether or not the water lands here or there? And by answering, God is saying, yes, God, yes, Gideon, I am that God. This isn't really about discerning God's will and making a decision about moving to a certain place. This is about God's willingness to reveal himself to Gideon in Gideon's fear and worry as he is trying to discern who God is. Back to our story. So the armies are preparing for battle, right? And of course, Israel is going to need every single hand and head they can get, right? That's what Gideon's done. He's gathered the nation, right? There's over 30,000 Israelites gathered for battle. They're excited. Look at all the people that Gideon was able to raise up. And this is what God says. The people who are with you are too many for me to hand Midian over to them. 
Otherwise, Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and worried is to return and leave Mount Gilead. Wait, what? God just covered Gideon with his spirit so that he could gather the nations, and then he sends home 20,000 people that very day. 20,000 of the 30,000 people that just gathered. Two-thirds of the people. Imagine you're standing there. You're like, all right, we got an army. And then God's like, and if you're afraid, feel free to leave. And now you're like, imagine being the 10,000 that are left. Like, I wasn't afraid then, now I am. (laughs) What's fascinating, though, is that God wants Israel to know that he is with them and he is for them. And he thinks that they'll forget him if they're too strong, if they're too prepared. But there's even more, right? Even after taking two-thirds of the people out of the army, God then starts eliminating people for the silliest reasons. Right? If you lap the water in the river with your tongue like a dog, you can stay. Like, who does that? Have you ever been to a river and done that? I'm thinking, man, that is a great way to eliminate an army. Like, think about it. It's like, who, anyway, sorry. So we go from the start of the day, 32,000 soldiers. At the end of the day, there are 300. This is like over 99% reduction in potential warriors. This is the ultimate anti-recruiting day, right? Gideon gathered a nation and God sent them home. Imagine what that would have felt like. 32,000 people. That's like, you know, a pretty big stadium. Like, go to the 49ers, you know, 32,000 people. And then you come to Wellspring. That's a big difference. But Gideon is still scared. So God tells Gideon, arise, go down from the camp, right? Go down against the camp, this is of Midian, for I've handed it over to you. But if you're afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp of Midian so that you will hear what they say. And afterwards, you'll have the courage to go down against the camp, right? So he essentially says, hey, if you're scared, sneak into the camp and check it out. Clearly, he's afraid because he grabs his friend and they go, right? And he sees this vast army. The text says that they are thick as locusts. And as Midian's walking through the camp, right, he sees this, and then he hears these two Midianites sharing a dream. And in the dream, they they see this dream where God has given over the camp into Gideon's hands, right? Gideon sneaks into the camp, and now he's overhearing a dream shared between two of the Midianite soldiers. So while Gideon goes into this army that's thick as locusts, underneath their armor, They're scared. The text says in that moment that Gideon worshipped God. Then he calls the 300 to action. They sneak into the Midianite camp. They blow their trumpets. They create chaos. And they end up winning this impossible victory. 
Now, usually stories and judges at this point say something like, and there was peace in the land for X number of years. Okay? But not here. In fact, there's a few stories here that provide post-victory details that are super important. First, there's this conversation that Gideon has with the Ephraimites. They're this super strong tribe that are unhappy because he didn't include them in the victory or didn't include them in the battle, um, probably because they wouldn't have come anyway. And they're upset with him, and Gideon's super diplomatic. He's humble, and he's respectful. And then the story turns to a conversation Gideon has has with the people of Succoth and Piniel. Now, these are smaller villages, smaller places, and Gideon is trying to bring his men to conquer the final leaders of the Midianites. His men come through, and he asks these two towns, hey, could you just feed my soldiers? And they're like, no, because they're afraid. They don't want to pick sides. They don't feel like it's like totally been decided yet, so they're afraid, and they say no. And Gideon gets really mad. Right? Ephraimites are strong, so he's respectful. These two towns are not. So on his way back, Gideon returns and he punishes the men with desert thorns and briars, verse 16, essentially tortures them. And then at Peniel, he pulls down the tower and he kills the men of the town. What we see is this formerly humble and risk-averse Gideon has changed. Now that he has power, he takes it out on those who are afraid and scared. The men of Succoth and Peniel, just like Gideon was afraid and scared, and now he takes it out on them. Though he wins the battle with God, he seems to forget his humble beginnings. He forgets that his story begins in a wine press trying to thresh wheat. And it only gets worse. The people ask Gideon to become king. And while he says the right words, he's like, only God is your king. He accepts the honors of a king. He asks for financial reward for acting as a judge and deliverer. And as a result, he becomes super rich and he takes all kinds of wives. He also makes this ephod out of gold he collects that becomes an idol for worship in Israel. And this is super important for a few reasons. One, it mirrors the golden calf incident. Moses goes up to the mountain. What does Aaron do? He collects gold and then he creates an idol. Gideon does the exact same thing. Second, the ephod was worn by the high priest in their tabernacle. And the ephod, or the tabernacle, right, was the place where God's dwelling was. And the ephod became a sign of God's true dwelling. It was also used to discern God's will. So in making this ephod, Gideon essentially sets up his own hometown as a rival place for worship in Israel. Right, he wants to encourage people to come for, to him and his hometown for guidance. Gideon consolidates his power and his position instead of using his power and authority given to, God, to him by God to serve Israel. The judge is supposed to turn the people from unfaithfulness to Yahweh. But with Gideon, he actually leads Israel into unfaithfulness. He tore down an altar in the beginning, only to build an altar to himself at the end. 
Now, you can kind of see why these heroes are not really meant to be emulated. And the truth is, this story, I think, actually speaks to a lot of us in our everyday life. Three things I want to highlight. First is this. I think this story tells us a lot about how hard it is to be faithful. I mean, just think about this story in Gideon's life, right? His struggle with fear. Has anyone ever struggled with fear or anxiety or worry? Well, you see with Gideon, right, it starts in the wine press. The angel has to call him, you know, valiant warrior. He's like speaking words of affirmation over him. And then he calls him to do something, and now Gideon has all these self-doubts. Has anyone ever had a self-doubt? Right, God uses him in this cool way to gather an army. Has anyone ever had God use them in a cool way only the next day to be afraid? He still needs assurance. 